So, thank you for being patient, DL. <laughs> yes, sir. No, <laughs> now, no just so everybody listening knows, this podcast is brought to you by a whole lot of patience and technical difficulties, but I think we got her <laughs> lick now. <laughs> well, man, this was a this was a short notice thing. I know we just talked the other day, but you've been a subject of conversation for quite some time between me and Colby over at Bear Hunting Magazine. So I'd like to give you a couple minutes. Let's introduce you and talk about some of your involvement there over at Bear Hunting Magazine. Okay. So where? What's your name? We we got T L. Yeah, my name's Tracy, but uh, over the years, it's been a weird deal because uh, I'm in the ministry, mm-hmm. and uh, I've had people get confused about whether or not I was a male or a female because of the name. <laughs> so, That's an important question in that field, isn't it? It is. It is. So on social media... Uh, I just use TL and, uh, I actually had a pastor in Montana one time that was passing out flyers and he did not want to put Tracy on his flyers and he didn't <laughs> know what substitute to use. So he put Tennessee Jones. Hey, that's a good alias. Yeah. It was so funny because he went to some woman's house and knocked on the door and invited her to the meeting with Tennessee Jones. He said, yeah, I've heard of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> like an hours earlier and it was so funny but yeah it's it's a weird deal i had a couple in montana set outside the church i guess for a long time one time decide whether they wanted to come in or not i had to hear so, your voice <laughs> yeah yeah it's a strange thing you know my mom named me tracy but they my family if you talk to any of my family that knows me they never use tracy it's always trace they drop the y so <laughs> i'm not quite and then other people call me my dad's name, Terry. So I'm really not sure what my name is. <laughs> Just not late for supper, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's crazy. And you've been involved in hounds, you said, your whole life. You don't, there's a discrepancy about your first, first bear, wasn't it, you were saying? Yeah, well, I'm 53, and uh, my grandpa was a fanatical bear hunter. I mean, he loved it. My dad loved it. I have multiple cousins and relatives and friends who are all just bear hunting crazy when i was growing up so i don't remember the first time i ever went i mean i'm my dad and grandpa you know they were they carried one of those little old flat um kodak cameras the flat ones look like you know like an extended pack of cigarettes oh yeah yeah and uh so there's probably a picture on a roll somewhere that was never developed the first time i ever went maybe i'm not sure of that but can they still develop that i don't know if they still do that anymore do they i've i've got some rolls of that i'd love to know if i could get them developed i'd just like to know what's on them but um so i don't i don't remember the first time i ever went it's just not one of those you know things like where some kids are 10 years old or 12 when you're in montana the first day you get to legally big game hunting right in tennessee they just took us and uh yeah the first bear uh, my dad said that he took me in and let me kill a bear when I was small, but I don't have any recollection of it. So if somebody asks, you know, how old when you killed your first bear, I don't know. Based on my dad, I was pretty young because I can't remember it. And, uh, but my memory, I was 
around 16, the first bear I can ever remember because there were few bears when I was growing up. Season was real short, and the grown men were they were pretty ruthless in the deal. I mean, today you know everybody wants to take a kid in to kill something. Well, that's not how the men were that I grew up with. <laughs> a little you were, different. Uh, yes, sir. You were. If you got big enough to beat them to the tree, you got your chance. But if you couldn't, you just forget about it. They killed it, and that was the end of it. And That's incentive, huh? <laughs> yep. Yep. And where so, did you grow up bear hunting? I was born in Greene County, Tennessee, and our hunting was mostly here. And in Madison County, North Carolina, the Appalachian Trail splits Greene County, Tennessee, and Madison County, North Carolina. And we hunted both sides. And then once a year, my family would go and friends would go to Canada. And I was able to go up there a couple of times when I was a kid and really enjoyed that. So, um, yeah, that's, but, you know, mostly here. And you're still doing it. Yep. Yeah, I enjoy it. I mean, I, I don't put myself in the classification anymore or maybe never was uh of the really hard hard hardcore type people i was privileged to be around but yeah i I probably enjoyed as much as anybody no that's the important thing i know that's what we were kind of talking about and i've talked with a couple buddies lately it's like you just you got to enjoy what you can you know time and circumstances and all that plays a big role so just enjoy the time that you're out there and the dogs and you know that's the most important part yeah, terrain has a lot to do with longevity in hound hunting. And uh, just, for instance, where we hunt here, most most men begin to decline in their ability to be able to scamper through the mountains here. You know, probably 50, 45, 50 years old, you start downhill a little bit. And uh, mm-hmm. not that you can't do it, it's just you're a lot slower doing it. Yeah, that's and, time is a tricky thing, man. It catches up real it, quick. <laughs> and not too many men past 65 are really what I would call, you know, still have what they could do when they were 25. Yeah. But I've been other places. Like we went to the upper peninsula of Michigan a few years ago. And I told Ben, I said, this is like taking 20 years off the clock. <laughs> really? Just the trends yeah. that much different? flatter i mean you take the flat off of it makes a big difference yeah because you're hunting pretty mountainous country at home yes it's steep i mean the elevate it's the elevation will fool you because you know i spent eight years in montana and people would say well what's your elevation and i'd say well it's right it's just slightly below five thousand feet the highest point is and they think well that's not very big mountain but it didn't matter if it's three thousand feet 5,000 feet or 12,000 feet if it's steeper than a cow's face. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. Yeah, in a lot of, like, when you get in that steep country, it's not just what you see either. You know, it's all those little finger ridges and depressions Mm -hmm. and bowls. And, like, when you get into that mountainous country, it's a lot different. If you've never walked through something like that, you just don't. You don't understand. It could take you a half mile to go 400 yards, right? Like by the time you're up and down and around and side hill and it can get pretty wild. I had a, we had a guy come and stay with us and I don't, I don't remember which guy it was now, but I remember him saying, 
he went home and was talking to somebody about hunting here and they asked him how to get prepared for it. And he said, well, he said, get you a, get you a, um, one of these machines you walk on a treadmill mm-hmm. and incline it as far as it will go, start running and have your wife beat you in the face with a broom. <laughs> as you're trying. <laughs> and I laughed. I thought that was pretty good, but yes, it's pretty steep. I mean, we went to Idaho this year and, that's real big country where we were at. And, uh, so I would say probably that chain in Idaho and this here is, is Idaho is much bigger, you know, as far as how far you would have to walk. Sure. As opposed to here, but this is pretty steep here and it's pretty thick. And, uh, you know, Tennessee sells over the counter bear tags and don't have to worry about being overcrowded. If you want to put it that way. Really? Yeah. So are you running your, your bear dogs on anything else like coon or, uh, Ben hog hunts them. Oh, really? Yeah. How are they on a hog? He does pretty good. I've, I've never, I'm not against, you know, hog hunting. It's just never been my favorite. I'm just not sure not my thing. And, uh, but he loves it. I'm not sure if he had to pick between hogs and bears, which one he would pick. Because as soon as bear season over, he starts heading to Louisiana and Georgia and anywhere else that he can find a place to run. He just absolutely loves it. I mean, they, they catch a lot of hogs in a year's time in the spring. There's a lot of hogs out there to be caught, huh? It's- yeah, I, I, I think that's a, it's a little bit of a mis- misnomer. I mean, if you watch some Animal Planet show that says, you know, it's dangerous to walk to the mailbox without getting attacked by a hog. That's a little silly. <laughs> and, uh, the problem hound hunters are having with hog hunting is, you know, the limitation on the size of property you can run on. It's continuously gets cut up for them. Oh, just like private land parcels and. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's not, there's only a few places, you know, that are public that are going to hold the kind of hogs they want to hunt. And so it's a lot of private ground they have to run and, those parcels just get smaller and smaller as mm-hmm. you know the cities grow and homes get built. Well, I know you and I were talking, and we we got on the subject of like silent dogs and how you know if that's mm-hmm. your cup of tea, that's great. But I'm assuming your bear dogs aren't silent. Are they? Do they run those pigs different for them? Are they quieter, or are they just kind of the same as they are on a bear and open? Well, you know, a a decent dog. It's got any sense at all, you know, just going to use his mouth appropriate to the situation. But mm-hmm. we, we like a dog that's open mouth, but don't confuse open mouth with babbling. Sure. You know, I'm not, we're not going to tolerate a dog that just runs through the woods barking for no reason. Oh yeah. But if, but if one strikes and he's traveling, I want to hear him. Mm-hmm. And lots of people like silent dogs. Um, and, you know, to each his own, I'm, I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying the primary reason I like to hound hunt is because I just absolutely love to hear a dog trail. Yeah. And, you know, if you ask me, why would you go bear hunting? Why would you go hog hunting or anything else? Because I just love to hear a dog trail. That's my favorite part. Yeah. And it's the, the part that you get regardless of the end result, you know, I think that's. 
It's the only thing that kept me hooked for a lot of years. We didn't do a lot of catching, but I listened to a lot of dogs, you know, <laughs> and, and you knew what was going on. And like I was telling you, I had that one dog, his name was Dale and man, anybody who had never been around or anything knew everything that was happening. They might not know what was happening, but something was happening, right? There was a change mm-hmm. between the strike and the cold trail and the jump. I mean, like I told you, I could tell when he was going to rig before he even opened his mouth. Just by the way, his feet were moving on the dog box. You could tell what was going on. And we, you and I were talking about, you know, people just kind of missing out on that sound of the hound sometimes with everything else that we're dealing with during the hunt and how important that is. Like that, that sound of the hound is something that you get to hear whether they catch or not. So we, we did a lot of listening. We had some good sounding dogs, but <laughs> that babble and versus open, I think is, is a good point because a lot of our listeners are experienced townsmen, you know, and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of them that are not, and they're new to the sport. They're just getting into it or thinking about getting into it. And, you know, a babbly dog, maybe we should touch on that. It means they're, in my opinion, a babbly dog is just a dog barking for any reason other than letting you know it has the track. You know, like a yeah. dog that's just running and making any kind of barking, unless it's got a piece of the front end of that track, I, you know, I personally don't want to hear it. No. Uh, a babbling dog, you can turn him loose in the Walmart parking lot and he's going to bark when somebody catches him. Right. I'm not interested in that whatsoever. I mean, if I, when I say I love to hear a dog trail, I actually want it to be trailing something. Right, you doing know, something. Barking. We were hunting. We were hunting oh, a few years ago, and uh, there was one particular dog that was trailing across uh, a knob on the foot of the mountain. Was, th- this particular time, it wasn't one of our dogs. And, uh, that dog sounded like it was just absolutely just looking at a bear, just screaming like it was, it was like the bear had already been jumped and was walking. It was looking at it. And I literally got out with my rifle. I thought the crazy thing was going to walk out on me. Right. And the, when the dog finally came into sight, there was nothing there whatsoever. <laughs> and it sounds like he's just looking at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was totally fooled. I mean, I would have. I would have bet money and uh, that the dog was looking at the thing. And a few minutes later, um, it was actually my cousin's dog, an old dog he had named Fred, which was really a reliable dog. Just, he left that dog, went the opposite direction, went and crossed a gravel road, went up to a, a pasture field. Really? And went through a pasture field, went all the way up into the forest service, Began to open, got other dogs behind him, and they jumped that bear. Uh, we ended up killing it later that day. But that Fred dog was smart enough. It took him just a few minutes to figure out that the, he was being sucked out by a babbler. I <laughs> get yeah, you're getting sucked in. <laughs> Once he realized what was going on, that was enough for old Fred. He went and found the thing and got it jumped. Yeah, man, those babbly dogs, that'll screw up a lot. In fact, well, I know we were wanting to talk a little about about screwing up bear races, you know, and yeah, well, you'd asked me, you know, to talk on the subject matter of blowing up bear races, and uh, maybe we should put it in a positive uh, 
spin and say uh, how to raise your percentage rates. There you go. (laughs) See, that's the way to think about it. Babbly dogs are not on that list of things to do to help your success rate. Let me tell you. No, that's not not on the spectrum of raising your percentage. No, but I mean, I mean, the thing is, you're bona fide, man. You've been hunting bears a long time. You do a lot of writing for Bear Hunting Magazine, right? Well, my son and I, and uh, I, and I tell people this, and this is not false flattery. I was fortunate enough to be born with a dad, a grandfather, two or three cousins, and a son who are all better bear hunters than I've ever been. So I have been surrounded by, I mean, some of the very best. I mean, just as good a houndsman as you could ever ask for. And not only them, but also, you know, men that I grew up with that I may not have been related to, but were just phenomenal hound people. Mm -hmm. So I've experienced a lot, seen a lot, whether it was me personally or other people. And uh, you can definitely raise your percentage rates on, catching bear if you pay attention to some things that you would think would be obvious but maybe it just takes a while to catch up with you and the number the number one thing i would say and ben and i of course ben's my son we talk about this all the time and to me the number one thing in raising your percentage rates is just being willing to be honest with yourself sure because what happens is you you'll get a dog or dogs and you get attached to them you have an emotional attachment to them and all hound people get mad if somebody lies to them but nobody lies to us more than we lie to ourselves (laughs) yeah it's a little hard being honest about something you're feeding sometimes and you just have to become personally ruthless in the evaluation of what you're turning loose and if you will ever be honest with yourself and then make the hard choices, your success rate goes up drastically. Just due to the quality of dogs that you're you're feeding? Yeah, the, the quality of dogs that you're feeding is probably, you know, on top of that. But I think some people may have better dogs than they know. They just don't really know how to get that dog better for instance you could have a guy whose success rate's low and he feels like it's his dogs but if those dogs are in the hands of a different guy they may that guy may want to buy them back yeah right yeah (laughs) and so when i say be honest the first thing you think is quality of dogs but a lot of times it's quality of handler just you Sometimes you got to be willing to say, is there something I don't know? Am I I missing something here? I mean, why am I not doing any good? Is it me? Is it the dogs? Is it the terrain I'm hunting? Sure. And be honest, you know, with yourself about it. And uh, when you, if you ever get to the point where you will be brutally honest with yourself and then make choices based off of that honesty, your success rate is going up drastically. That's to me, that's the thing I would tell everybody above anything else. That makes sense. And being honest, I mean, to me, like another way I think of that is you have to know what you want 
to have a measuring mm-hmm. stick. And if you don't, mm-hmm. which I suffered for a long time, like I wanted to run dogs, right? Like I, and we were bear hunting and I loved that. Then we couldn't really bear hunt cause we lost it in, in California. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, but you know, I would always just wanted a dog that barked, <laughs> you know, and I could go listen to and have a good time. But once I was forced, like, Hey man, this isn't just a commodity anymore. Like you got to make a real effort to do this. What do you want? And then it was a little easier to make those decisions, even though they were hard. Like you had a measuring stick. Does that make sense? Yeah. I actually read an article on that for bear hunting magazine about breeding to a standard. Yeah. If you don't, don't know what you want, then it's impossible to get it. How you get there. Exactly. Yeah. Well, see, that goes back to this, uh, this honesty deal and, the. Like you'll have a guy and I hope people who hear me talk understand. I'm not, I don't want to sound like I know everything because that's not the point. I'm just saying from what I've seen, and there's probably lots I still need to see and need to learn. And hopefully I will run across the people I can learn it from before it's too late, but you'll run, you'll run into a guy and he will tell you this is the best dog I've ever had. This, uh, this dog's awesome. He's fast. He's this, he's that, he's this, he's that. Then you get to see the dog work. And the guy seems like he's a liar. Because you see the dog, and from your experience, you understand that's a subpar dog. Sure. It may be subpar because the dog itself is subpar and don't have the abilities to be any better. It may be subpar because that dude don't know how to help the dog. But either way... It's not what you believe. And your assumption is this dog, this guy's just a blowhard. He's a liar. That's probably not true. It's not an intentional it, thing. It's yeah. a different measuring stick. Yeah. It, his, he, he just hasn't had the life experience to see something past that. I mean, think, I mean, I guess if I could put in these terms, think about a guy who had never seen anything but a, a, a Mustang. He lives out west. He's in Arizona. The only thing he's ever seen go across the field is, is a wild Mustang. Mm-hmm. Fastest horse he's ever seen. But the Mustang, if he somehow picks it up and hauls it to Kentucky Derby and puts different. it against the Secretariat, I mean, there's going to be no comparison. Right. I mean, the Mustang's going to be rounding the quarter pole and Secretariat's crossing the finish line. Yeah. And that's true with hounds and a lot of folks for different reasons have just haven't been exposed to exceptional dogs. And that's could be true for us. I mean, someday we might be me and Ben and the people we hunt with, we might wander into somebody and realize, Holy smoke. We thought we had great dogs. We hunted this dude. <laughs> yeah. That'll happen <laughs> a few times in your career, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, but that's the truth. And, you know, if you don't know what to measure up against, that's what I tell people. Like, when you want to change, if you want to change game, a good friend of mine told me, he says, it's three years. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to switch pieces of game and you want to be successful, you're three years between finding out how to do it, how to make yourself do it, how to get the dogs that know how to do it or train them how to do it. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of effort to be successful. When, when you're switching up like that, because it is different. He says, like I was running blue ticks 
you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. pretty much what I ran was primarily blue dogs or blue Walker crosses. And then when we started running these gray Fox, I did a lot of listening and a whole lot of not catching, you know, they just, right. they didn't run with the same track style. So I had to switch dogs, you know, completely. And that was a rough decision in some ways, you know, in other ways it was super easy. You know, those dogs were getting old. They weren't able to hunt anymore anyway. So we took the opportunity and just jumped ship and, and went and tried something different. And we've been enjoying it too. So I don't well, know. That, measuring that sticks br- are tough. That breed loyalty um, is okay, but there's so much diversity within breeds mm-hmm. that you can't say, well, a blue tick's better at this versus this, this, that, and the other, because, I mean, you could go somewhere and probably find some guy that's been breeding register blue ticks to to run faster game for 50 years and they may just be as fast as whatever you switch to you just don't know i mean sure and same thing with plots you know clay newcomb was here the other day and he asked ben he said ben he said no and he was doing a special on plots and he said uh, now you like plots right and i got so tickled at ben because he said no he said <laughs> i like my plot and it uh, makes sense meant, though and, and what he meant by that is the plot the plot breed is so diversified that you can't just say, well, I want to be a bear hunter. Therefore I must need to hunt plots because you may have found a strain of plots that are great, you know, Mm -hmm. one thing, but not another. So you, it's really strain specific in any particular breed. And then of course, this will get, this will make so many people aggravated at me, but I'll say it anyways is, (laughs) A, a lot of people have this idea, well, if something's crossbred, it's automatically better simply because it's crossbred. And that could be true or not true. But the fact is a dog is what's in those genes and then what's done with those genes. And whether it's, quote, purebred or, quote, crossbred is not what's important as a methodology what's important is what's in those genes regardless of how you come to that yeah uh, and i think another way like another word that comes to my mind is just a track style so it doesn't mm-hmm. matter to me what color like some of mine got running walker in them some of them got you know other stuff mixed in so it's mm-hmm. not so much a, a breed or a strain or a specific cross but it's the track style and, and that is what i want so whether they look like a walker dog or they've got you know, flag tails or, or whatever. It, it's really that track style that if they can't all work together and you're, they're working against themselves, that makes it worse. Well, we're getting off track to the subject we were supposed to talk about, but that goes back to your standard, you know, and what Ben and I agree on about dogs is that people ask, what's the number one trait you're looking for? If you have to start somewhere and to us, it's, does it produce game? Mm-hmm. Like if you could get a basset hound that every time you found it, it was bait or tricked on a bear, it wouldn't matter how short its legs were. Right. It wouldn't matter how long its ears were. <laughs> because a dog with longer legs and shorter ears that didn't catch game would be useless. But if that old basset hound somehow is ending up every day treat or bait on a bear, then there's no need to talk about how long its legs are or sure. if its feet are, you know, it's getting the job done. 
Yes. And that, to me, that's where you got to start. Everything else is an accessory. You know, you got to have that base model before you start adding accessories. Sure. No, that makes sense. And the base model is, does it catch game? And then, you know, is it consistent at catching that game? And that's what people ought to ask. You know, we, all of us should ask if I load my dogs in my truck and I go somewhere and turn them loose, are any of them going to go catch something? Mm-hmm. That's that being honest part. <laughs> yeah. So, but our, our subject on blowing up bear races or raising your percentages, we started off by talking about, uh, you know, being honest with ourselves. And then if we want to stay on that subject, what I would go yeah. to would be um, uh, the actual turn loose itself, I think, is where you make or break what's going to happen the rest of the day yeah let's get tl's tips and tricks for for not screwing up a bear race up up your percentages <laughs> what, what kind yeah, of tips up, we got up, up your percentage we all we all mess up races for sure but over a process of time we see ourselves make the same mistakes and i this is i can't tell you how many times in life this happens it happens all the time if you, whether you are at a bait or your dog strike out of the truck or whatever it might be, that bear track's already what it is. It's, it's fresh. It's old. It's in a feeding ground. It's not in a feeding ground. It's straight away it's through rocks. You know, it's something. A bear went somewhere and done something. And it did it at a certain time. The dog's responsibility is to pick that up and go find it. There's some dogs that are real good at it. There's some dogs that are not. Mm -hmm. And there's some dogs that are exceptional at it. And there's some dogs that are just fire at it. There are some dogs that are worthless at it. And it may be because they don't have the skills to do it. Or it may be because they haven't had the opportunity to learn. Sure. But on any, on any given day, my preference is, if I want to kill it. Now, if you're training season and you want to give your pups an opportunity to learn the trail, you also understand you're giving them an opportunity to mess up. That's fine. But if it's kill season and you got a bear track and this is one you want to kill, I mean, you want to kill this thing. And you don't want to mess it up under any circumstances. The way we like to do it is one or two dogs that we know know what they're doing now they have the possibility of not being able to get it straightened out doesn't you, nobody's a hundred percent but the dogs that know what they're doing the percentage is obviously higher than the ones that don't you know you want larry bird taking the last shot or do you want tracy jones taking the last shot in the nba <laughs> final right i want larry bird taking it so we turn Larry Bird loose and let him get on out there. And the, that guy turned him loose. If he's hunting him enough, knows him. And uh, like if Ben and I are standing at a bait somewhere, or if we're even for just turning loose off of a strike, depending on what dog it is, one or the other of us could tell you, you're probably good to turn another dog loose now. And or 
slow oh, feed. Oh, no. Yeah. Now there's some things that are just so hot you can just dump the tailgate. I mean that, but that's not what we're talking about. Right. If it's just uh, if it's just so hot you can just back up and turn the entire circus loose on it. That's it's different. But I've seen dogs blow that up. Mm-hmm. Um. So you turn Larry Bird loose and let him go on. Feed another one behind him when you know he's ready to be fed into. And then you say, well, it, I know most people that listen to this podcast will say that's kindergarten stuff. We know that, but maybe. But yeah, I a lot see of guys it, who don't. Know, we see it over and over and over. Guys, they just don't have the patience to wait. I've got to get old Brummy in there. I've got to get it. The other dogs get too far ahead. Well, at that point, you got to ask yourself a question. Is it more important to you to feed old Brummy in, or is it more important to you to kill that bear that day? Right. And if it's training season, send old Brummy in there. So, if I were going to summarize so that we won't get stuck just on this for the next hour, you just need to turn the dog that knows what it's doing loose. Let the guy that understands what that dog's doing direct everybody and feed the dogs in in a way that dogs that don't know what they're doing quite yet are not as good at it. Don't overrun your front dog while he's working a track and blow things up. So what you're assuming is that bear has walked that night. He could be anywhere from 300 yards away from you to three miles away from you. You don't know where he's at. Mm -hmm. I want the front dog to get far enough ahead of the next ones I'm going to turn loose that he will get out there and have the track straight and moving before I start sending things behind him that might not quite understand what's happening and maybe just, you know, they learn by following the other dogs at first. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, they run the track too. They smell the track, but they're also learning from the other dogs and I don't want them overrunning him. Sure. But that happens, happens all the time. People just, they won't hold them. So I feel like that the turn loose is really important if you want to kill something. So when you, when you're turning dogs loose like that and you're, you're waiting to feed them in, right? Mm -hmm. You know, my question would be is, are you waiting to feed them in until that dog's like lined out enough that he's not going to pay any attention to some barking behind him. Like, cause I think of my dogs, if there's a, a big lose or something and they hear a dog barking, they they're generally going to honor that dog. If they don't have it, they assume he does. And they go there, which is something we look for in our type of hunting. But with bear hunting, you know, if a dog's coming in behind and barking and that front dog makes a lose, are they going to keep trying to figure that out? Or is it just going to throw a wrench in things and have them second guessing the situation? Or is this like you're waiting until it's actually a jumped race before you're feeding dogs in and you feel like they're really, really moving it? Well, I think it to, uh, to us, it, it really, you really are dependent on the guy who's turning that first dog loose to know that dog. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I guess an example would be I had a dog that just died last year. His name was Crow. When you walk through the mountains, you could just let Crow free cast with you. Mm -hmm. 
And if you had the other dogs on a leash or had them with you and the crow was free casting and you heard him open, if he barked more than four or five times and was taking a line, you could go ahead and start feeding dogs to him because he did, and there was no foolishness in him. Sure. He, he wasn't going to be babbling. He wasn't going to be on trash. And if he barked more than four or five times, you could pretty well figure he was going to, he had it. Gotcha. So when he hit that fourth or fifth bark, you could turn your next dog loose that you knew would go join helping him trail. Not just but another if, dog, a strategic next dog, right? A str- yeah, a strategic next dog. I I wouldn't start turning. I wouldn't turn my trainee dogs loose until you know at least fourth or fifth. To, you know, if I was running six dogs, mm-hmm. I'd want my I'd want my dogs because I everybody wants those pups up front, but I'd I'd rather my pups be on a successful race as a blow up. Oh they'll, sure. They'll, They'll follow those other dogs. They'll stay behind them if they got any gumption, you know. And when and when they finally do catch up, something will actually be happening. Oh, that makes sense. So I know a lot of guys like starting with puppies. You know, let the puppy start it, and if they can't get it going, then you throw out another. But that's just every minute. It's getting farther away, you know, potentially. In my yeah. eyes, I like letting them mess with it. But like you're saying, if you're wanting to get on it and get it caught, there's nothing wrong with making them learn behind a, a good dog. You're not throwing them in behind just something of its equal, right? You know, you're throwing it in behind the cream of the crop, what you're considering to be your your best start dogs. It's not going to hurt them, you know, that, in my opinion either. It does them a lot better. Like you're saying, that opportunity just went from an opportunity to smell a bear to possibly an opportunity to catch a bear just in how you're releasing these dogs out for those pups well that's our, that's our specific topic we're not talking about training pups today right if we we're talking about training pups our whole approach might be different because it would be training season or it might be a smaller bear or we might not even be wanting to kill this particular bear this day and that we could wouldn't have to worry about taking a chip we're talking about a definite day that we want to kill something and we don't want to goof it up sure yeah, we're not talking about training pups. We're talking about killing bear. Right. So you said they wouldn't be down your list until probably your your fourth or fifth. So sure. when you're looking at your start dogs, I'm assuming like you've got your pack figured out. Like you know your dogs. So you've got mm-hmm. your start dogs. I mean, what do you what do you call your next round? What what would you call them? I don't know to have a name for it. It just you just know which one's going and not coming back. Um, like, um, I have a dog named Gideon and Gideon's not what I would call a cold trailing dog at all. But if you pulled up on a bait and the dog struck out of the box, I could, me or Ben or whoever could pull Gideon out and turn him on the bait. If he comes back to you, you know that it's not super hot. He's just not a cold nosed dog. He don't. He's not going to grab out a track. But if I turn him out and he hits it right away and just begins to go away from you open, you can turn about anything loose then. 
Because you know it's hot. It's, it's Gideon and not Pro, yeah. So you're using the dog's gauge as a gauge on the track, like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, your dog should be your. If you know your dog, your dog's telling you what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. And or like Gideon's real good about not going the wrong direction on a real hot bear. Like if the dogs cross the road, and uh, sometimes you know there'll be a situation like. Here's a good example. And the we were on a road and say the road's running north to south and the dogs were coming from the east and going across to the west. The bear ran out in the road and I saw it. Mm-hmm. There was a kid standing in front of my truck and I was having to tell him to move to get out of my way so I could pull up to go put more dogs on it. When I finally got that kid out of my way and pulled up there, I turned Gideon out of the truck, and he went exactly on the bear's backtrack. Because I was so mad, I was so mad I could just spit. And uh, I was yelling at Ben, "Don't turn more dogs loose!" Gideon went the wrong way. Don't turn more dogs loose. And finally, another guy standing there got me stopped, got me settled down. He said, "Listen," he said, "You didn't see it, but when..." You were trying to get that kid away from the truck. That bear was in the middle of the road. He turned and went back on his own bear track. Oh. So he had it the right way. He had it. I was the one confused. <laughs> I, I was ready. I was ready to, you know, put some stimulus on old Gideon. Oh, sure. And uh, I about messed the whole, I about blew the race up yelling, don't turn more dogs loose. Because I thought Gideon went the wrong way, and you know I thought the other dogs would fall in behind him, and and the guy told me he said no, 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 no. He said you don't understand, you don't understand. The bear turned, went right back on his own track. So, uh, that's you know that kind of stuff happens, but the dog knew. So, and that's that was I mean that's a strength of that particular dog is he he just don't normally go the wrong direction even when I thought it would. So if if you pull up on a situation and you turn him out and he takes a track a certain way, you're pretty good chances that's the way it went. Where with he's other dogs, going, yeah, possibly, yeah, I know I've had those dogs, that are hot one, they can't, it's almost harder for them to figure out a hot one. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yep, exactly. And, and then, yeah, we try to get involved and, we got a 50-50 shot. I think the dog's got a better average than we got. Because <laughs> I'll bet that happens more than we think. You know, I noticed it with small game, too. Is You know, they come out the road, and then all of a sudden, the track's just gone. Well, you didn't see them double back. You know? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's kind of crazy when you got to realize that we're, we're playing a partnership with that dog, too. So, if you, like you said, you know that dog, you know it's probably going the right way. You can kick him in. But this is act- it's actually a good transition from the turn loose, which I think we've emphasized enough how important it is to get a good turn loose to make sure everything's going the right way. And sure. But those to packing on throughout the day, you're going to pack on to a race. There's a lot of races that are legit races and the dogs have had the bear all day. And then somehow on 
trying to feed more dogs in it gets blown to smithereens. And the number one, above all, from my personal observation, is what we call face packing. Define that one. Well, you're standing in a you're standing in a, a road or a trail, someplace where the dogs are coming directly at you. Uh huh. Because you you position yourself, you know where the dogs is going to come into the road or the trail, and they're coming straight at you. Well, people will pull up and pack dogs straight into the face of the bear and the dogs coming at them. Mm-hmm. That, that blows up a lot of races because that bear sometimes, my dad, he really drilled this into my head when I was a kid. A lot of times that bear, especially on an all-day race, he may be 500 yards ahead of the dogs. And I know people say, well, you're, that means the dogs are too slow. <laughs> I don't want to hear that nonsense. That bear might have went through a cliff and got away for a little while. Sure. You don't You don't know. That bear may be a good piece of head of the dog. So imagine that the dog's coming at you and you're reading him on the garment and you know he's 400 yards coming straight at you. What you don't know is that bear's already made it to the edge of the road, took a right-hand turn, and and is loop and going back the other way mm-hmm. so you pack straight to your dog and those dogs then are running to the bark of that dog that trailing dog hears them and thinks oh no they packed on up there or whatever they think sure yeah so he just lifts his head and comes on straight to your dogs and then nothing has it and that first round of dogs is not happy <laughs> yeah then then then, you know, the dogs in somebody's truck blows up and it's, it just creates a great deal of chaos. And that's that packing on business face packing to me is just, if the dogs come into the road, stay back. Don't, don't even get to where it's coming straight at you. Stay back away from it, mm-hmm. you know, two, 300 yards and keep all the dogs quiet. Don't let nothing in the truck bark. That, that or was laugh. one that hit me hard when like, you, you know, people were always like, well, keep your dogs quiet, but nobody ever explained it. You know, when you're new, it's like, Oh, just shut your dog up. There's a reason like in a really good reason for keeping your dogs quiet, which is not fun. Like training them, you know, they hear a dog barking and they're in the box. They want to do that. But like you're saying, that's a huge, huge issue. If those dogs are pushing something in your direction and they're hearing other dogs bark, I think that's pretty universal across game species, even, so how do you, well, man, that's well, another topic. You, I could go down a whole rabbit hole with you on training too. And I want to keep it to this for now, but we're going to have to probably follow up on some of these, bud. <laughs> you got a whole compilation of things going on with a dog because sometimes you want him to stay on a track. No matter what, you just want that nose down. You want him on that track. You don't want him to pay attention to another dog. But because we pack hunt, there's times when he should pay attention to another dog. I, I mm-hmm. personally believe dogs learn each other. I personally believe that if you hunt smart dogs together long enough, they know who to pay attention to. And who to ignore. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think they're smart enough to figure that out sometimes. But in a roar of dogs, that signifies to that dog trailing, wait a minute, that thing, that's bait up or it's treed. Sure. So it, it creates havoc in 
not keeping your dog quiet has blown up a many a race. Loud trucks will blow up a race. You know, people, you know, take your truck have the, I don't think it's a big deal anymore because of all the stipulations about emissions and stuff. But back years ago, first thing people did when they bought a truck was take it to the muffler shop and have dual exhaust put on it. Right. And, uh, the bear, they learn to stay away from them vehicles, stay away from them trucks and stuff. I hear that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Then the, the whole packing deal too, like, uh, you have a couple dogs that's been on the bear all day long and they're just walking it. I'm not a huge fan of packing in fresh dogs there because that tends to be a time when you can get the bear's tired. Mm-hmm. He's already decided he's not going to treat. He's tired. The dog's falling him tired. They're probably not even engaging with each other much other than just the dogs are walking behind him barking. Sure. And, uh, those fresh dogs go in uh, it changes the whole di- dynamic of everything and uh, so or if a bear's crossing you know like left or right you don't you wait to the you wait till it passes you so when you're turning in i mean what what do you consider a safe time when, when you've let those those dogs keep trailing to a point where you know that bear is headed away from your location and you're packing dogs in, like, behind them? Yeah. That, to me, that's the rule of thumb. You want, mm-hmm. you want the dogs on the bear going away from you. However that is, you just don't want them having a head-on collision and causing a whole upset. Give them that's some right. time to get them turned away, and then you can just send that dog in that direction and they start coming up. Yep. You know, the, the if, hope is if, from the rear. If it crosses the road, let it let it cross. If it's in a place you don't want it to cross the road because of boundaries and stuff, make racket. You know, I'll, even, I'll even hiss my dog in the truck to let them know it's okay to bark. Just to get it or, turned. Or I'll go back and act like I'm going to dump the tailgate. And when I do that, they know. It's okay to bark now, you know. Sure. Another difference, you know, get them barking or blow the horn or do something, get it turned, and then when when you hear the dogs or turn start going away, then you're you're pretty good then to go ahead and start turning them back into it because you're talking about upping your percentages. So your percentages are higher if you're not the one blowing it up. Sure. But you you hit on something when we were just chatting the other day about that and the two dogs, you know, if you've got two that have been staying on it all day, you said sometimes that'll change the situation about, you know, relaying dogs in and whatnot and being successful. Do you remember talking about that with me? And we could go back and talk on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, what we're talking about today is wanting to kill the buyer. Mm-hmm. You've had, couple dogs or three dogs on it and they've been on it all day they're tired bear's tired so they're just walking and the, those dogs have adjusted to that bear and he's adjusted to them and i'm not calling it a mutual agreement like you would be with people but <laughs> they know what he's they know what they're doing. dealing with 
Yeah. They know what they're dealing with. And he knows what the buyer knows what he's dealing with. So they're just walking along. If you want to kill it, to me, the best way to do that is just have somebody go in and kill it. Just kill it to the dog that's on it. You don't have to load it down with a whole new fresh pack. But if they've been on it all day, they're going to stay on it. Right. So just go ahead and send somebody, slip somebody in there to do it. Now, if they walk it across the road and it's going away from you, you might want to catch those tired dogs off and put fresh ones on him. Sure. But, um, you know, sometimes a, dog, a bear that's been walking all day, if you put fresh dogs on him, he'll just take off again and catch his breath, take off again. The tired dogs drop out, fresh dogs may run him out of the country. That's just the choice you got to make, but. So it's one of those things where that bear is going to adjust to what's after him too. You know, I think of it like a rabbit race, you know, they say like a a rabbit only runs as hard as it's pushed. Right. You, do you feel that the bears are the same way? Like they've had a chance to catch our breath after walking with those, those tired dogs. And all of a sudden they can just grab another gear once they're being pushed harder. I can't prove this, but it's my personal belief that every bear has a different personality the way every person does. Mm-hmm. I don't think bear are generic in their personalities. Some of them are going to fight all day long and all night long, and they are not going to tree, and it don't make any difference how many dogs you put on them. And I've heard people say, you know, different, but I promise you, there are some bear that are not treeing, period. Mm-hmm. For that particular day, and it don't matter if you've got five on them or 50 on them, they're not going up. Right. And I, and I, I don't, I can't prove it, but I believe this is true. There are some people who love to fight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is. I mean, they just, they just love it. I mean, they will purposely wait to get off on Friday just to go to a bar and start a fight because they want to fight. They want to find somebody to fight. Mm-hmm. Some of them, you know, some of them find their way into the professional fighting. So they have an avenue to do it. that's legal, right? They're, they're just some people, man. They just love to have a scrap. And there's some people who they don't like confrontation at all. You know, they just soon, you know, some of those bear would just soon climb a tree and be done with it. Sure. So I, I think some of that is out of our hands because we don't, we can't have no black bear personality tester that we can, you know, get a blood sample off of that day. Just. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny that you say that though. Cause I, I'm of the same belief. I think that they, you know, if a dog can come into a room, you know, I hear clay and Brent Reeves and those guys talk about it. You know, they smell, they don't just smell soup, right? They smell the tomatoes. They smell the potatoes. They smell the garlic. They smell all these pieces. I think that these dogs know the exact piece of game that they're running. If they've ran it more than once, especially if it was a bad experience. I think personally that those dogs know just by the smell of it, because they're different. Like us, you say everybody's personality can be different or pheromones are different. Mm-hmm. I can't prove it, but I, I'm of the believing that they know, like you get them on something raunchy and they've had to deal with it before. I mean, maybe that dog's not whooped, but he sure whooped off of that one. 
you know, like, I don't know if that makes any sense or what you think on that, but I do think they know the difference. Well, I think that goes back to the personality of the dog. And that's where you get your worst train wrecks. Mm-hmm. Cause I've, I've been around dogs that love to fight. I mean, that was their thing. I don't, I'm not talking about five other dogs. I mean, they just, we call them greedy. Right. But they, they stick just, with the they mean one. Love it. Oh yeah. If you turn them on one and they get a hold of it, they're going to catch it and they're going to catch it again and again and right. again and again, because that's what they want to do. They love it. And a lot of the, you know, people have this idea that you're forcing these dogs to do these things. I don't know that dog. Once he's unsnapped, he does exactly what he wants to do. Sure. Or don't want to. Do. It's of his own volition. And some of them are scrappers and some of them will scrap if necessary. I mean, I'm not out tonight looking for a fight nowhere, but if you walk in my house and, and grab my granddaughter, I'm going to try to find the fortitude to beat your brains out. Right. And some bear, I think, are that way. They're not going to, they're not fighters, so to speak, but they will if they get harassed enough. And some of them, some men are passive. Some men, literally, you could walk in and grab their granddaughter and they just watch you leave with her because, you know, they don't have any uh, fight in them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And some bears are that way to me. They're just, some of them seem to love to run too. They're just like track athletes. They just <laughs> seem to really love to run. Yeah. It's interesting. So like in your area, do you notice like those bears that don't like to climb? Is it, do you think it's an individual basis, like strictly on that? Or do you feel that some of it is learned behavior? Well, that's interesting. I don't know that I've given that a lot of thought. I definitely believe some of it's individual personality, but a bear maybe that has had multiple conflicts over a process of time, you know, may have figured out, well, if I go up a tree, they'll be here after a while. And if I don't, I may never see them today. I'm not sure. That's a good. I just, you know, I, I remember reading, um, it's a book called the Bobcat dog or Bobcat dog by David Pegtail. And he was talking about Bobcats specifically, but about how in, in certain regions and certain environments, like they just didn't want to climb. They'd choose a rock hole over a, a tree or whatever. And it, it just mm-hmm. seemed like it was geographically associated, you know, like they had these resources. So they used them and never learned to use the other. And those bears, it's, it's funny. Cause I think about all those hundred, 125 pounders that, got Nikes on and can run for days. And, you know, that's different than sitting and trying to, to bay up or, or stand up for the dogs. You just wonder how that translation is. Like you said, if you DNA test each one and know it, it'd be kind of interesting, <laughs> you know, as, as like a psyche study on these bears. I just, I was thinking about David's book in that. And I, I tell guys, you know, any, any dog could catch the right piece of game. Right. Like you find that pacifist bear that doesn't want to fight, doesn't want to do anything. A dog looks at it and barks once and it climbs a tree. You know, any dog can do that. That might change who you're turning in and what order you're turning it in to avoid that blow up. You know, like you were saying, it seems like the order and how you relay and your observation as, as a handler, like all of that's fluid. You're constantly assessing the situation 
like you said, you know, your dog that, you know, it's going to be hot. If he turns out and lines out and it's going, that changes who you turn loose next. Or if you, I mean, are there situations where you just drop the tailgate and cowboy it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Generally when I shouldn't. <laughs> it's a reminder yeah. of how to blow stuff that, up. <laughs> that, that, see, that's the whole point of the conversation is I don't care how long you hunt, you get, can get so excited and so fired up that you do stuff totally against your own judgment. I mean, you know better you, and, and you just get so wired, so fired up <laughs> and you just, you do it and you know, you shouldn't do it. And after the fact, you feel bad about you did it. You shouldn't have done it, but you did anyways. Right. You know, you're, it's just, you get so excited, but you know, we're talking about raising their percentages. And I guess that's probably part of it is, You've got to learn to think cerebrally at the same time that you're jacked out of your head. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Cause we, it's the bug, right? Like we can't shake it. It's like every time that, you know, animal would cross the road, all the old timers would tell us, you know, oh, you don't turn loose on it. Give it 10 minutes. Let the scent settle, blah, 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 blah. And as a kid, you're like, yeah, right. I just saw this thing cross the road. We're dumping the box and we're going to go catch this thing. And you know what? By golly, nine times out of ten, those old timers were, were right. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. you just get over overzealous and you want to get them going instead of thinking about the situation. So feeding them in, I, I mean, mean, like you said, th- I from mean, the my, very start. My, oh, my Gideon dog. I mean, my like my Gideon dog. If you turn him out and he hits red hot and takes off, you can probably dump the box. Because he's not a cold nose trail dog. And if he's taking something out, you know, like it's on a rocket, probably everything else you got in the truck can, can too. Sure. So I would feel comfortable, you know, dumping the box. And I guess it depends on who's with you and what's in their box. But the dogs that, that Ben has that are used to hunting with Gideon, you know, with the exception of a, this year's pup that's just getting started, all of them should be able to be, just be dumped. But, you know, there's, there's, there's people that will pull up with a truck. And even if you should dump in the box, they dump and their dogs will run straight down the road. They'll hit the backtrack. And it's some of it's operator error. Mm-hmm. Some of it's, the dogs haven't been given the experience and different things. And so when you ask, are there times you can just dump the box? Oh, sure. Absolutely. But even then, what you're dumping matters, I think. Sure. So like with Gideon, cause you're saying he, he's that kind of, I don't want to say cold, cold nose. Like you can gauge the age off of him easier. If he doesn't get oh, it yeah. going, do you, do you like specifically select him to gauge how old the track is? And if there's something that can't get lined out, you have your, let's say a colder dog in mind that you're going to put out and still try to catch that bear. Well, I'm just Gideon's not, you know, Gideon's not Ben's primary trail dog. I'm just using his example because that's easy to use as an illustration. Oh, sure. But, but before my crow dog died last year, if you say you pulled up to a bait, you turn, Crow and Gideon out on the bait. It's very possible that Crow would go up there and bark maybe one time and you not hear him again for 10 minutes and Gideon come back to the truck. Okay. 
and then both of them were are pretty trash free. So I knew Crow's not running trash. He's just smelling something that Gideon can't smell. Or Ben says he's late, too lazy to run a cold track. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can put it that way. And uh, so uh, Crow goes on up in there and hits another time. I've already put Gideon back in the truck. Well, you know, 10 minutes later, Crow's a half a mile away and hammered down because he's got it jumped now. Mm-hmm. So if Gideon had been by himself, he never went and jumped that bird. But at the same time, at the end of the day, when everything else is exhausted and a lot of dogs have just physically exhausted and worn out, Gideon may be the dog that literally is on it till nine o'clock the next morning. Right. Because so, once it's up, once it's up and he's looking at it, he just has a lot of stay power. And there's, and I, I'm not trying to use my dogs as an example. I just, it's easy for me to illustrate. There's better dogs. Oh, that's than perfect. Crow. There's better dogs than Gideon. And I'm just using them because I know them. Sure. No, and that's a perfect example because everybody should yeah. know which which piece of the puzzle. I think of a pack like a puzzle. You know, our dogs are a little different. I'm not looking for an independent dog per se. Like I'm, I try to judge them all independently, but mm-hmm. they have to be judged independently and on performance in the environment, right? Like in the pack environment. So yeah. you're, you're picking and choosing what pieces you have and who fills what spot. And I I think, like, thinking back to what we've been talking about here, like you said, if you're pup training, that's different. Like, today, Mm -hmm. we've been talking about being successful. Like, this is an actual hunt. Because I think that if if you're using your own mind and you're really thinking about the situation and you're trying to not blow it up, right? Like, we all try not to blow things up on purpose all the time. But when you're really thinking about it, I may have to be okay with two or three of my dogs possibly never even seeing the race. Like you're saying, you know, that dog gets out there, he's quiet, he's slipping out, he's lining it out, and as soon as he's comfortable talking about it, all of a sudden he could be right on it, and it's one of those bears that just jump up treed, and he's the only dog that caught it. Yeah. Well, that brings up another point that you and I discussed before about, you know, getting something treed and then people pack into the tree, which I see, I don't see any reason for that whatsoever. Um, there might be a rare case where you have a bear that's jumped out multiple times in a day and one dog left on it at the end of the day treed. And you know, before you can get there, it'll jump again. So you pack three or four dogs down to the tree. So when it bells there's fresh dogs on it. Sure. You can, I can see that, but for the most part, if it's treed, I just want to leave it treed. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pack dogs into a treed bear just so I can walk in and bring them out, or worse, pack them into a tree so somebody else has to bring them out for me. <laughs> yeah. So you you're a big fan of like if they don't make the tree, they they stay in the truck. You don't turn them loose in unless, like you said, certain situations. You know it's a jumper. And unless there was just, I mean, some massive reason. Well. Well, if you had a weird situation where a pup just somehow popped a bear tree and that you don't even know if that pup will stay at the tree more than an hour. Oh, sure. You don't, don't know. 
and you don't want to take a chance on losing that bear, you might pack some to him. But for the most part, no. But the dog ain't there. When the bear goes up, he just stays in the truck. Yeah. No, and that, and yeah. I think that's one of those topics that there's a lot of guys on both sides of that fence. You know, guys. Yeah, well, I don't. What other people do don't bother me, but sure. I mean, uh, it bothers me if they're with me. Right. It especially bothers me if, like, they're not going to go to the tree and get their dogs and bring them back. Mm-hmm. So like, what's your what's your logic behind that? I mean, just for everybody listening, like they didn't do the job. They don't get the reward, or is there a, another reason that you just don't have them there? Well, for one, I don't think you should take advantage of other people. For instance, I'm not able to get through the mountains the way my son can. Mm-hmm. If my son's in a place that I know I'm not going to get to, I'm not sending five more dogs to the tree just so he has something else to lead out. Sure. Bear's tree, he's at the tree. They can kill it or not kill it. And there's three dogs there. Why send him five dogs to have to bring out? I'm sure I don't he think, appreciates that. I don't, that's fair to him. And he probably wouldn't say anything to me about it. He'd probably just bring the dogs out. But I don't think it's right to do that to him. And I don't think it's right to do it to other people. Sure. Now, if those five dogs have been on the race all day long, and I can't physically get to where it's at, but two other young guys are, that's not the same to me. No, no, I see what you're saying. So it's just more more that than it is a, a learning tool for the dogs. Do you feel like they're learning anything at the tree if you just kick them in? Well, yeah, I think it's. You know, if it's training season and a dog's never been to a tree or he's never been to many trees and you're going to go down there with him and uh, the bear's moving around in the tree and the dog gets to see it up there again, you know, more exposure, probably helpful to him. But we're talking about killing bear. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to send, I'm not going to send dogs into a tree where you're going to kill a bear because that's just five more to lead out. Yeah, or drag but, behind you. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, if you, again, if you say, well, it's tree, it's not going nowhere. I got a puppy that's never been where a bear's been killed. I want him to see it. I understand that. But sure. We're talking, we're talking general purposes. Those dogs are not going to contribute anything to the killing of that bear. They're just going to be more of a nuisance to me. Mm hmm. Just more pieces in there. Yeah, I don't see any reason for it at that particular time. And, the other thing, too, I don't think gets brought up uh, enough is is the shooters. Who's going to shoot this thing, and what are they going to shoot it with? And uh, I think I think the animal and the dog deserve for that thing to be killed as, as immediately as possible. Sure without any mitigating factors afterwards. And that's not always able to happen. And you know how hound hunting is. It's unpredictable. Oh, sure. But for us, like for instance, I'm not a personal fan of hollow point bullets in revolvers. Why so? 
I know there's guys out there going to say, no way, man, my book, it's this many feet per second and so on and so forth. But there was a time when I could sit down and name multiple bears that had been shot and not killed on the spot, but, you know, had to be dealt with later. Just simply because the ammo the person was using couldn't get the job done. Now, if you can make a perfect shot, you can kill them with anything. Sure. You know, pound for pound, it's not legal, but pound for pound, 22 Magnum will kill them dead or no hammer. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times on the ground, you don't get the perfect shot. And so that those, uh, especially like a 44 bullet, if it's a hollow point, it already is reduced in velocity because you're shooting out of a shorter barrel. Mm-hmm. And then it's already a big enough diameter that you don't need it to be any bigger. You know, you, you want a 22-250 to mushroom because it's a small diameter. Right. There's no reason for 44 to need to be mushroomed. Yeah, that's but a chunk of lead that, anyway. All that mushrooming is soaking up energy. And if you hit bone, the, the velocity is low. And if you hit fat, real thick fat soaks up a lot of energy. It's not uncommon. And people trying to kill bear for when you skin one out, you'll find the reason it didn't kill it is because that bullet's still stuck in the fat. It didn't even it didn't even make it to anything to kill the bear. The bear wouldn't even have really? died from it. Oh yeah. Just because of the expansion and it just absorbed all that energy. And I mean, cause some guys, I mean, I know in some areas you got fatter bears, like we have bears out here that, I mean, I've killed two or three of them and there's not an ounce of fat on them, but like a real fatted up bear. I mean, how thick you're talking several inches of fat that that has to go through sometimes. Right. On certain places on that bear's body, fat can be two inches thick. Yeah. And it'll soak up that energy. That's wild. And so I don't, you know, like I said, I'm a happy-go-lucky type person when it comes to other people, to each his own. I don't care what anybody does on their own thing. But for us personally, we don't like to see anybody with a with a pistol, like a semi-automatic type pistol. Mm-hmm. I know there's a fad for people to start carrying 10 MMs. Yeah. Uh, uh, not a fan of that whatsoever. I'm not, I don't want nobody carrying a pistol. And if you go to a revolver and I want you to have something in it that's either solid and jacketed or hard cast. Just a solid hard cast bullet. It, well, it can, it can be lead and it's jacketed. And but it not can just be like hard, a straight water cutter hit. or something like that you try to stay away from. I, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't want nothing that's not jacketed. It's too soft. Gotcha. But if you, if you're shooting a 44 pistol and I say 44, because that's the common thing people, you know, are going to show up with, you don't hardly ever see anybody with a 41, which, mm-hmm. you know, 41 is a good round. A 357 is a good round. If it's in the hands of somebody that, you know, is capable of using it. Sure. Um, 
And I don't hardly ever see anybody carry anything over 44 because the recoil gets so bad that people just can't efficiently shoot them. Yeah. But now are you, are, are you talking about those like as a, a protection, like on one on the ground or, or out of a tree, you guys are harvesting with pistols and, and jacketed. Well, no pistols whatsoever. But if you're going to carry a revolver, you may end up shooting it out of a tree with a revolver. Gotcha. Uh, or killing it on the ground, either one. And I bring it up. I mean, uh, on a podcast, you shouldn't be on a soapbox because we're having a general discussion. But the sure. this is a soapbox of mine about using the right ammo. Everybody gets consumed with what rifle to have. Or what revolver to have, but in it, you don't kill nothing with a rifle. You kill it with what comes out of a rifle. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. And so everybody, well, what kind of rifle do you carry? Well, I carry a Remington or a Ruger or this or that. Well, what kind of ammo you got? I ain't sure. <laughs> well, you're not going to run that thing down and club it with your rifle. Right. So what's important is what's coming out the end of that barrel. It'll so, up your success rate. I mean, like even out here, yeah. spot and stock, you know, the last bear I killed, he had a, a hollow point round stuck in his elbow. You know, somebody had taken mm-hmm. a pop shop, it looked like, you know, and it, I'm assuming it was a pistol. It looked about like a nine or a 40. It was hard to tell. But, you know, if you yeah. want to be successful and you're not using the right equipment, you're not going to be. That thing walked away, healed up, you know, survived. I can only imagine, you know, we've seen what can happen. Unfortunately, you know what? You don't want a bear wounded. That's going to ruin your day. You know, you want to see it dispatched as quickly as possible and humanely and, and all that, because it means everybody walks away a little better off. You know, it, one that comes out without using the proper ammo. I can see how that could cause some, some issues. If you were to poll the people in the area here where I live that have fire hunted, say, X amount of years and have seen quite a few dead bear in that time. Not that they killed them all themselves, but they had been around a lot of bear killed. Mm-hmm. I think in our country through here, you would probably get more people to say, I'll take a 30-30 or a 35 Remington over anything. Really? Yep. And bear hunting don't change from area to area. I mean, I carry a forty-five seventy rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I have a 4570 is because we lived in Montana and they started posting grizzly signs around where we lived. And Ben was going in his 270 uh, bolt action to elk hunt with, and I wanted something big enough to knock down a grizzly if it run after us. Oh, sure. So, but it's not something as big as a 4570 is not necessary, you know, for bear hunting. 30, 30, 35 Remington is my favorite. 200 grain round nose bullet is a is an effective machine. Nothing wrong with a 30 out six. Uh, or, you know, even, you know, but what we ask people to do if they come here tonight is we want them to have something that light because we want them to have it with them. Mm-hmm. You want it shorter because you're probably going to be in the brush and you want open sights. Makes sense. We don't want, we don't, we don't want people hunting with us with a scope rifle. If they do, their shots are going to pretty well be limited to it being in a tree. Right. 
Because if you got it caught on the ground here, the laurel's thick and it's dark under the laurel. You're just not going to be able to distinguish a black bear from a black dog. Sure. No, that but, close range makes sense. So, I mean, this is all plays into our raising the percentages because you want the bear dead. Right. You don't want to lose it over a missed shot opportunity just because you got the wrong equipment. Yeah. And the bullet is the main thing. I, I would love to be able to poll the audience that listens to this podcast to know how many people out of a hundred even know what ammo they've got. Maybe we can find a way to do that. The comments, I'll, maybe we could do yeah. like, or in our podcast group or something, do a, I'll have to look into what, that and see if we can do a poll. What, what brand it is, what bullets in it. I, I, I'd love to know the percentage of people who even know what ammo they're carrying. So self-serving question then, because you shoot a forty-five seventy. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it makes you feel like a bear hunter just carrying one of them because you can shove <laughs> your thumb down the barrel. I mean, that is like the gnarliest. I, I'm a lever fanatic. I always have been. Yeah. I've inherited, you know, the family stuff all the way from like an old turn of the century Winchester 94 and 30 Winchester up to like, you know, 375 Savage, 308s, 4570. That 4570, there's something about it. When you pick it up, you know you got a piece of tool right there. Like that's going to take care of the job. But what well, what are you running like a factory load through that or are you running a hand load? I reload uh, mine, but I'm shooting uh, the 405 grain Remington core lock, which I can't even find anymore. Good old core I've lock. Got about, yep. I was, you know, the, you remember when they used to advertise those, the deadliest mushroom in the woods? Yeah, deadliest mushroom in the woods, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like those bullets. They've been time-tested over the years to just be good. They're just good bullets. They're nothing fancy. But I can't find them now. So I, I've got like 19 rounds left for that 4570 that's loaded that way. And if I lose them or run out or whatever i'm not likely to run out but i lose them or something i'd probably just have to go to a hard cast because i can't find those anymore well if anybody from remington's listening <laughs> yep. by some odd yep. chance yep. we got somebody here who needs some stuff it's funny because yep. i just switched over i i've tried or primarily always hunted with a seven mag and here in the big timber, you know, when we were bear hunting, it wasn't a big deal because they weren't really on the ground. They usually treed and you could get a good shot. But I ended up with this 308. And I said, you know, I, those nozzle partitions, they're good for big game, but I'm going back to core locks. And I started shooting them in, in a bunch of stuff and thinking, yep. like, over the course of time, that probably has to be one of the most game taking bullets out there on the market yeah and there's no question about it. it's just tried and true you know i'm the kind of person if it works i don't see any reason to change it and i'm not you know and i'm not a gadget person yeah well that's why you got wheel guns and levers right <laughs> <laughs> right right uh, but you know semi-automatics um My dad and my grandpa both and myself, you know, all had um, 30 out sixes. The Remington 
uh, 742s. Mm-hmm. My grandfather's was a standard size. My dad's was a carbine, they called it. And then mine was a standard size, but Ben took it and had it cut down. And he's used to bear hunt. I haven't used it to bear hunt with, but is it, those old Remington, as long as you don't have a jam problem, that's a good round. Uh, you know, in the 30 out six, I like the heavier bullet, like a 180 grain round nose. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of the round nose because the way they cycle. Less jams in the action, just yeah, they feed better. They just feed better. In the heat of yep. the moment, that's pretty important. <laughs> that's something people don't think about, but that first shot counts. That number two shot sometimes could end up being way more important real quick. Well, it's I wasn't there. I was just a kid. They had a deal years ago. I've got a picture of them in the cave. My dad and Papa and the buddies they were hunting with lowered a guy they were with down into a cave to shoot a bear in a cave. The dog and the bear was in the cave together, and oh, he had an old 30 out six and it jammed him. Oh no. And him down in the cave. Yeah, I don't want to so, be there. <laughs> don't but, think. You know. So I, I like a lever action. I actually really like a bolt action. You know, there's a there's a reason that those guys who hunt in Africa on those big five shoot uh double rifles. They have independent, from what I understand, I'm, I'm definitely not a gun guy, but I've been told they use those because they have independent triggers, meaning if something happens to the trigger mechanism on one side, the other trigger is totally independent. So you got to back up. So you've got, it's very unlikely, the statistical odds of it having two malfunctions on two separate triggers. And then, you know, past that, they're, they're bolt action guys. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan of the bolt action, but I have literally, I just out of pure desire to want to have something different. I have looked and looked and looked and looked for a, a bolt action. I thought would be a good brush gun. I've tried. I think it's a, I think the model was a, maybe a Remington 600. Don't hold me to that, but mm-hmm. they were shorter had open sights and were produced in a 35 Remington. But I never, uh, I was never willing to pay what they wanted for one because, you know, you got to buy them used and the people want them, view them as collector's items. And- sure. You know, I found one years ago and I, I bought it for my wife because I'm a nice husband, a.k.a. I wanted a new rifle and I already owned th- two 308s, but I wanted this one. <laughs> there was um, that Ruger Scout model. You could get it in 223, 5.56, or you could get it in 308. And that I thought would make the ultimate brush rifle other than a lever gun. Cause it was super short. You know, you could attach a red dot if you needed to, but it was open sighted. Um, I think this one, it had peep sights, you know, with a ghost ring and, and real short compact rifle, like a, a carving lever gun. But that's what I was going to shoot through. It was, uh, those Corlock 308, 180 grainers. And that, that's a cool little rifle and fun to shoot because it's based off of the M77 platform. Oh. That, that might be one to look into for anybody out there. It's 
it's a little pricey. You know, they came out with them years ago. They were real popular in two, two, three, but the three Oh eight, man, it's, it's a fun gun to shoot. And it's definitely, I think if I were to go back and, and be bear hunting again in the brush, it's definitely a, a top contender of what I'm going to grab next to that forty five seventy. <laughs> My, I have a brother-in-law that's a big fan of the 308. I've never owned one. Mm-hmm. Well, you might have to. We would do real well. We might have to send you some pictures of one. Check them out. I think they're still making them. It, I'm not a gun nut either. I know what I like, and I kind of just stick with that. And usually what I have in my hands is what I like at that moment. But I'll send you over some pictures or something let you check this thing out. Um. We were in along the same lines. If we go away from the percentage rates of the ammo, I think it also needs to is an important discussion about who you're going to be willing to hunt with. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot to do with your percentage rates too, because you can take one guy who is, he just dead set on being successful. He wants to have good dogs. In fact, he probably wants to have great dogs. And he's willing to put the time and the effort and the exertion and the sacrifice into doing it. Then there's other people who just, they enjoy more the social aspects of bear hunting. Mm -hmm. Like maybe being around people or talking on the radio or something along those lines. And what happens is you will have this one guy who literally trades his life to be successful at this one thing. And then other people will sort of like just filter into it and want to just, you know, hang around it and benefit off of it. And I personally think that you ought you need to have enough respect for certain people's dedication to something to not be the one who messes it up for them. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially if you want to invite it back a second time. Yeah, well, I mean, even even uh, even my own son, I mean, he's he's a bear hunting psychopath. <laughs> well, I'm not so much at this, you know this particular point in my life, definitely not anywhere near his level of commitment. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would be right for me to create a situation that reduced his ability to be successful, even with him being my own son. Sure. Nobody and wants I to be the reason, you know, something goes south. Sure. So on success rates, I think you have to at certain times, there's a reason that the major league baseball teams don't hold random tryouts and ask people to come from, you know, the general community to the tryouts. Right. It's already through, you know, from, from kids have been practicing from T-ball all the way through grade school, high school, college, minor leagues, you know, and then even, very few of them is ever going to see the, the field for a major league team. 
Well, there's some guys out there. I mean, they're bear hunting fanatics. I mean, they are, and they're good at it. They know what to do. If you're going to hunt with one of those guys, be respectful of who they are and the knowledge they have and the desire they have to be successful. Try to be a benefit to them. That's all I'm saying. Try whatever you can do as a part of that process. Make sure it's a benefit to the dude who's given up everything to make it work. That's harder to do in the moment than a lot of people think, <laughs> you know, because you don't realize, I guess when you're in that stage, you don't realize you're in that stage. You know, I think back to the guys I was hunting with and, you know, unintentionally, I was that guy that was just there and I was having fun. You know, I like talking on the radio. They all joke about that still. And now I get paid to talk, <laughs> but you know, it's like you enjoy all those things, but I'll say, yeah, it caused some rough times too. And unfortunately lost some, some good hunting partners over it unintentionally. You know, and now looking back and going back and talking with these guys, you know, years later, it's like, yeah, you know what? I didn't, I didn't give the value to what you're doing. You know, like you weren't just catching animals because there was a reason there was a system, there was effort, there was dedication, there was sacrifices made where now it's different. If I go hunting with somebody, I don't even like my personal thought is I don't turn a dog loose unless somebody else says to even now, you know, like if I got dogs that I know can catch it, if I'm hunting with somebody until the words, Hey, you can kick a dog in. They, they sit in the truck because I don't want to screw up their success rate. Like we're talking about, they do this every time they go out, the dogs know what they're doing. The hunter knows what they're doing. So sometimes it's it's hard to notice you're that guy when you're being that guy, but later on you realize you <laughs> you were being that guy for a lot of time. So new well, to hunters, me that to me that's just basic respect of another human being. Mm-hmm. If if the guy if the guy that I'm with knows what he's doing, I ought to listen to that guy. Let I don't need to be in charge. Let that guy be in charge. Mm-hmm. Let him let him call the shots because the real key is to be successful at the end of the day, not who gets the credit for it. Yeah. No, that's and a- I'll tell you, definitely that's definitely a percentage raiser. Letting the guy who knows what he's doing, you know, call the shots during the day's time. It's hard on a man's pride too, because you want to be the man. You want to be the guy. <laughs> Everybody wants to be the guy. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a lot of time to get to be that guy, unfortunately. You know, and a lot of open-mindedness and a lot of reflection, too, because I know you've done it. I've done it. Everybody that, that has been in this for a while, you think about those races long after they're done. Why, why did it go wrong? What happened? Was it me? Was it the dog? Was it the, you know, the situation? What caused this? And a lot of times I can tell you in my early days, it was me, you know, and it's taken a long time to get past that. So I think this, hopefully this is helpful for some guys, especially, you know, we think of bear hunters as being around forever. And yeah, we have historically been bear hunters as houndsmen, a lot of us, but there's a lot of new guys getting into it that really like, look at Montana. They, they just got their bear season, right? So there's a lot of guys getting into this and hopefully it's, a, this episode will be helpful for them at, at being successful 
We'll have to do a follow-up. We'll have to talk about training since we stuck to the, the successful part. But if you got time sometime, bud, I'd definitely like to get you back on and talk some young dogs and some training and, and stuff like that, too. It's pretty simple to know where you're at in the pecking order of things. You just have to ask, if I went and did this by myself today, what would be happening? Yeah. That guy there was doing it by himself. What would be happening? And if that other guy catches just as much game without you as he does with you, he don't need you. You need him. <laughs> yeah. And it, acknowledging <laughs> that goes a long ways with people. <laughs> oh man that's the truth well shoot i appreciate you coming on today tl we probably better wrap this up we're going on probably close to an hour and a half but i would love to have you back and i really appreciate you hanging in through all of our our (laughs) pre-record endeavors just give me a holler i will and i'd like to encourage everybody if you want to see more from tl Go get yourself a subscription to Bear Hunting Magazine. Colby Moorhead over there. You, there's really good stuff in there, especially if you're a new bear hunter. I know they try to get a bit of hound content in there as well. It's a good resource. So I'd encourage everybody to go check that out too. I would mention one thing since you're plugging the magazine. Sure. If, if you have <laughs> listeners that hunt other things and they would like to experience a bear hunt with hounds or like to specifically try it in Tennessee, my son has uh, Pell Horse Outfitters, or no, he calls it Pell Horse Guide Service. Oh, perfect. Yeah, let's give him a plug. Ben, it's Ben Jones at Pell Horse Guide Service, and uh, he uh, he does a good job, and I think there's some folks out there would really have a good time. Well, we'll have to get a link for his, his guide service. We'll put it in the episode notes here, too. And maybe we'll have to drag him on to one of these someday. Yep. Yep. You probably should have had him on instead of me, but, uh, we'll, we'll save the best for last. How about that? Yeah, that's <laughs> the way we'll save. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right on, bud. Well, again, thank yep. you so much, DL. We'll look forward to talking to you again. All right, man. See you. All right. All right.